You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello there and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is Sean Hughes in another show recorded live at the Gilded Balloon at last year's Edinburgh Fringe. We've only got about five of these shows left now after this one. Uh, There's some great episodes coming up with Tim Vine and David O'Doherty, Claudia O'Doherty, Max Inavan and Ed Byrne. So stick around uh, for them in the next few weeks. But now, here's Sean Hughes. Thanks very much for coming, Sean. My pleasure. So, let's uh, let's let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, fine. <laughs> We're quite ready to do it. Let's yeah, I'm do ready, it. I'm ready. Um, so, your show this year, just for anyone here who hasn't seen it, or anyone listening on the podcast who didn't make it to the festival, just uh, if you could briefly sketch out what your show was this year. See, I'm not very good at that. Um, it's. Uh, I think it's uh, well. No, what 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 you saw? What would you, how would you explain it to people? I could good. I move. could walk out if good you don't. Good turnaround. Yeah, <laughs> this doesn't go well. It could be a short podcast. <laughs> um, well, I think what your show was was a really interesting kind of. It, I felt like you were wrangling with the subjects of loneliness and being middle aged and being childless. Is that? Do you think that's true? No, not really. You were, you were, you were. T- it was a show on the, about regret. On the surface. No, it, no, it's not actually. It's about the main thrust of the show is about society tells us how to do things, and I'm of an age where I go, no, that's strictly speaking not how you have to live your life, and so the very fact that you bring up the fact that you're alone, like I, my life choices, I'm 47 and I'm not married and I haven't got children, so I'm seen as an oddball. But they're life choices, and I think that's wrong that I'm seen as an oddball for that. Okay. So that, that's pretty much... But okay. it's interesting because you just said, oh, you're childless and you're learning, and I go, no, that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Sure, but it's about... I mean, it's about those topics. It covers those those topics. And for all that you are you are seen as an oddball, it's a very odd show. Do you <laughs> not think? <laughs> I don't in, know. Just... In comparison... I, I don't mean that in a yeah, negative yeah, way know, at all. Yeah. But in comparison to a lot of sort of shiny floor, besuited stand-up that you could find at the yeah. festival. Well, well... Like, there's two big changes to me in the last four or five years. Is the last two shows, uh, pretty much, I've wanted them to be uplifting uh, rather than be cynical. And um, and just also, it's about connection with an audience. And I think jokes only go so far. So I tend to try and use emotion, which is very hard. And mm. then you're seeing as an odd joke, because you're using real emotion. Sure. Uh, to try and push across points. And, and like, obviously try to do it with humour, but it's kind of... Like, like I'm very much of that, and this sounds up as so Irish, but it isn't. But as I'm joke as philosophy, you know that's okay. that's what I'm going for. Okay. If it's successful, that's up to other people. But I have to try and connect with the audience, and uh, and like because basically the whole show is all about it's all right to be. Uh, you're not a failure, even though society might deem you to be one. That's sure. what the show is about. It's not about loneliness and okay. not having a child. Okay. That's just surface stuff. Sure. Okay. Well, let's in order to, to it's better than like I kind of. Uh, because I always insist that when I do interview people, the only thing I ask is that they come and see the show. And uh, I had to do the Simon Mayo show for Radio okay. 2. And I, I, I listened to him on the way and I thought he was all right. But God, like, you know, so bear in mind that he came to see the show. He still, the first question was, uh, so why's it called Penguins? I'm just going, well, what a shit question to ask considering he just watched me sweat for an hour on sure. stage, you know? Sure. Do you so know that he definitely well. came? 
Yeah, yeah, he did. Oh, he did come. Yeah. Is that is that better or worse? I don't know. That's well, true no, than if no, he was on the plank. It was it was probably worse because I got the impression he didn't quite get the show. Sure. Okay. So that's always a little bit worse when you're talking. So when you're going inside, you're going, you didn't like it, did you? <laughs> well, I hope that. I hope what this what this podcast gives us the opportunity to do is to is to unpick those sorts of things. Sure. Yeah. And how important is to you that like that there is a central message in the show rather than you know a range of emotions being yeah. explored well, well yeah but this is another thing and it's new to me as well but I and this goes totally against the grain because comedy is very much punchline where you're told like every joke is a story but the tiny story so mm. like set up punchline but it is a story and, and I wanted to try bring ambiguity into the uh, comedy because also it's very much like is coming from being middle aged and having done lots of our sets like the young comics now, mm. and I'm like I'm not going to knock young comics, but there's so many of those telling jokes. You certainly mm. don't need a middle aged guy to be thrown into that mix. So I just want to do something uh, slightly different, having moved away slightly from that format. Sure. Well, let's just so we can put that in context. Let's let's explore that format and how you came to comedy. Now, obviously, there's sure. lots of material in other interviews and online about how you started in comedy. But if you could just briefly explain that for our audience here. Like how you brought yourself to comedy originally? Um, I was about, uh, I'm just one of those people very driven. So I was, I was about 14 uh, in Dublin and not really expected much of my life. And uh, I saw Richard Pryor on the television. Mm-hmm. On, uh, I think it was the program that they showed on BBC4 last night, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, the uh, Storyville documentary. Yeah, that's on tonight, yeah. but yeah. The, uh, the, the stand-up film oh, sure. okay. uh, live. And I watched that with my dad and I just went, that's the only person so far in my life has actually spoken the truth. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'd like to do that. And I, like, I think you find uh, all the really good comics, they, they want to be someone like Richard Pryor. They, like, they feel, because so, he's got mm. such a gift that you feel, he makes it look so easy that he's just talking about shit. And you go, oh, I'll go out and do that on stage. And I remember desperately wanting to be Richard Pryor, but didn't have any of the skill set. So I ended up being in a double act doing Star Trek material, because that's, <laughs> that's as good as I was. Okay. That's all I could do. Sure. And, I, and I desperately... Like, it took me about 10 years before I could find any kind of voice where I could do things that look like naturally talking, but it just takes so much uh, sure. space on stage to become that good. Be- because presumably part of it is when you first start out, you're so desperate to get any kind of a laugh that you do any- anything yeah. in order to get it. I yeah. mean, when you were doing Star Trek material in a double act, because I think a lot of uh, people that listen to this show, a lot of comics uh, and maybe creative people in the audience today will kind of empathise with that thing of like, well, I, I had this goal in my mind, but actually if I look back at some of the stuff I did... Uh, well, no, but see, this is the weird thing, because uh, so I did things in, in school and stuff, and that was like just whatever jokes happened to be on the telly, and we did them, like, sure. there wasn't any writing. Um, and then uh, we, I did a media course with uh, some guys, and we started a double act. And it was one of those where we went to the uh, TV station, RTE, the Irish TV station for the day, on like a day trip, you know, with our sandwiches. And uh, and me and my mate impressed one of the producers, and they said, "Oh, do you want to?" So pretty much when I was nineteen, I did live television as a double act, and oh like my God, that okay. was amazing. Like we were fucking proper shit, and, <laughs> and we were on television. Like what was it know? called? What were you called we as were, a double act? <laughs> yeah, exactly, we were called the Short and Curlies. Okay, yep. Um, so we were so bad, but um, it was just amazing. Like you know, like really thrown in the deep end. So we did a double act, and then. And we did that, and then there was no uh, structure for doing comedy in Dublin, so we started supporting bands. Okay. And uh, and so then it, so it became fairly obvious stuff because you can't do any subtlety in a rock gig. Sure, you know? sure. And then we we came over to London as a double act to do you know to start you know break it in London, and we the first couple of gigs we did they went really really well, and uh, and then about four gigs in we died on our ass, mm-hmm. and my mate <laughs> short or curly I don't know which one he was. <laughs> Um, he uh, he just said. Uh, we, I remember we were living in a flat in Walmsley uh, above a hairdresser's, like really living the dream. And uh, I think it was a unisex though, so it was nice. Um, and I remember him him like like he didn't say anything, but obviously it really affected him us dying on stage. Yeah. And what I loved about being a double like is it was you two against the world rather sure, than just you, sure. and that was so important. But he just says uh, he made up this call and said, uh, "Oh, my sister's really ill. I'm just going to go back and visit her." And I knew. That's what he said, but he was pretty much saying to me, I am never doing comedy ever again. And we had uh, about 12 gigs booked, which I went on and did as a solo performer, cobbled together, like, you know, the Star Trek stuff as a one 
man piece. Sure. And I just learned how to improvise on stage then. So that was okay. uh, by, by luck and judgment that I kind of learned how to really deal with shit on stage because I had no material and I had the gigs to do. So the first time you went on as a stand-up, you, what was written was a combination of cobbled together yeah. half a double act and presumably like stuff you thought on, on the bus on the way there of like, I'll throw everything together. If we could only afford a bus back then. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, pretty much. Sure. But it made me work really, really hard. Okay. Yeah. And so what so how was that experience of those first few gigs on your own? Was that a positive experience or was it something you just felt you got away with? Um I'd say I got away with it more than anything else. But like I would say like this is the thing like um when I started in comedy it was it was like it was seen as an art form and it was also bizarrely it's totally uh turned on its head. It was seen as something that you don't get good at until you hit your 50s. Mm. Cuz you're saying well what life experience have you got? And and I became part of that generation with Newman and Badil who became comedy to new rock and roll mm -hmm. so we kind of started that a little bit but um and now you know it's all about young people like you know if you're over if you're after 24 you're seeing sure. you know what the hell do you want to listen to you for bring another fella back on so it was um so and that's seen by that i think do you mean by producers or by audiences by everybody like comedy wasn't a young because also because comedy wasn't on stand-up wasn't on television so but you have to bear in mind people on the alternative circuit weren't looking for a break onto television. They wanted to express themselves. Mm. And that's why it was a beautiful, absolutely beautiful scene. And like, it wasn't where we were all being left wing and all that, but it was, just, it was just a collective of people who wanted to express mm. whatever it was. You know, mine happened to be shitty Star Trek jokes at the time, but you know, this was a massive freedom for everyone. And then, um, and then television, like then, that's when the Friday and the Saturday Night Live came out with Ben Elton. And we all, that was the thing then. It was... Um, we all got like five minute slots on that. And weirdly, I'm rubbish over five minutes. Like there's certain mm. comics that are brilliant over it and I never was, so I hated all that. Okay. But it was, um, but so we were just doing it to express. And then, well, actually I'm probably jumping ahead. I'll have done my whole career in four no, minutes. No, that's all right. Well, let me do, let's just, for, just kind of uh, focus in on this idea of self-expression and how much of when you were a young guy doing the Star Trek stuff or whatever you could put together, did you have ideas about self-expression then or was in terms of the material or was it simply the fact that you were doing comedy felt you were expressing yourself? Um, I think it was a bit of both and then I just felt at the time it was very much just above pubs uh, with the gigs so you were given a lot more space to, sure. to make mistakes which you're not now and uh, and yeah because then like, basically your, your day was you'd get a notebook like you have there and you'd just write some stuff and you'd go out and you'd try them mm -hmm. And uh, and were I, you quite a, were you quite a busy writer? Were you kind of waking up well, in the morning and writing stuff? No, I've never been a nine to five writer. I always wait for it to come to me, and then and even to this day, I still do most of my writing on stage. Mm -hmm. But it's um, but like well, I was kind of doing kind of one liners at the time, and it's uh, and I just it didn't really because I remember one of the lines I used to do, like really corny lines, but I remember. Uh, doing one at the comedy store where I'd go, oh, I hate those come on lines. You know the ones I mean, like, uh, come on. <laughs> and, uh, you know, which are fine. And you'd sell it in a deadpan way. But I just sure. kind of went, this isn't me. And I, 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 I couldn't really find my voice. So it was, it was less about writing new material. It was really just trying to articulate your own personality. Okay. One of the earliest jokes I remember seeing you do, and it must have, must have been on telly years ago, um, was you talking about um, drinking and going, oh, that's gone straight to my clothes. You know, yeah, I don't remember that. Do you not? That's There's loads so I don't remember. Probably drunk, wasn't I? I when I had Norman Lovett on the show here, he, uh, I reminded him of a joke about a Kit Kat and that I've reminded him of three times in the last 10 years. And every time I've reminded him of it, he's gone, oh, I must put that back in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just hasn't stayed with him in that way. You know, but it, it is weird because like, there's lots of, like, sometimes people remember stuff and I have no recollection of it. Cause, like, it's just a that's of a time and then you know it's like you move on it's a bit like a relationship you have that relationship with the jokes and then you just don't want anything to do with them mm. really and you said you were probably drunk at the time were you drinking on stage at that no, time no well no you like you drink socially I never I've never done a show I think I've done one show once where I was probably a bit hammered but I'm mortified I just think you have to be professional in that situation like mm -hmm. you know I think you know it's a very sociable thing but I'd, you'd have one maybe beforehand mm. but but and did that reflect what people were doing around you? Was everyone sort of expressing themselves and sort of... Was everyone as concerned with the art of it? No, no it, it was already creeping. Because I was at the tail end of the political movement. So it was already creeping into just uh, people making a decent living out of being mm. quite lazy, really. Mm. But it was... Um, yeah, but it was, it was kind of... Um, 
it, it was it's still like as I say, no one was doing it to get on television. Mm. So people were doing because they wanted to be stand-ups, and I think that's changed now. I think a lot of stand-ups sure. want to get on television as soon as they can. And there's a, there's certainly a lot it, it's, in the nine years I've been doing stand-up. It has seemed like a completely valid career path in a way that it didn't even yeah. nine years ago. And even now, I think there's a lot of people. I don't know if you, you know about the Alternative Comedy Memorial Society. Yeah. And there's kind of a new wave of people who are just in, who are doing stuff that can deliberately never get on TV. Although we'll find out in five years whether any of those people end up on yeah, TV. No, no, well, I think it's important. But like, yeah. I definitely think, uh, like, you know, it's weird. And I don't want to be slagging off anyone because I think it's hard. But the, especially with television, some of the comics on television have brought it way back to the way it was in the 70s. Mm. And that's kind of really wrong. And it feels like alternative comedy just wasn't important at all. Like, you know, mm. cause, like besides people... You know, trying not to be kind of homophobic and racist and, and the rest, which, you know, society isn't as such anymore. That's the only change to the really fairly bog standard jokes on television. And like even I found like uh, I think this has been a great, very friendly festival. And mm. the, I think the worst aspect of this whole festival is Dave's stupid kind of joke of the festival, which belittles. Sure. Everything everyone's trying to sure. do. Sure. This it? is the. I don't know if people know about this. That Dave, the TV channel, every year publishes their top ten jokes, and they're often they're one-liners out of context yeah, or tags jokes. from people's routines yeah. or something. Yeah. And I find that really belittling and kind of totally disrespectful to what the fringe is all about. Mm -hmm. So with the just to follow the line then of your of how you were progressing, yeah. you were because you ended up with your own TV show, obviously after you won the the Perrier. Yeah. Here, so so pre Perrier or pre pre that that show, that was your first show, was it? No, no, I uh, I came up to Edinburgh first and did uh, one of those like three of us doing one show. Sure. And uh, who was that with? Who were that you? was with Simon Bly and Bert Tyler Moore. Okay, I know um, Simon. I don't know. Bert. Yeah, no, and that was like that was great. Like I've always loved the festival. And then the second year, I came up and did a, a really weird show at Stephen Frost, where he played my manager. And the whole show was about we were filming it uh, to sell to ITV. Okay. And he was just the most fun to work with on stage. And we were told we'd, we'd had a chance of winning the Perrier that year. Okay. And so, but we, we were told, we were given a nod that everyone loved us. So to be eligible, we had to kind of uh, do five more days. And like, we weren't selling out at all. We hardly had <laughs> anyone in. So we announced, you know, due to public demand, five extra days. And then we didn't get a nomination or anyone else came to see the shows. So. Uh. But, I you know, know that was fine. A lot of new comics listening to this, I'm sure, will take heart from the fact that that sort of thing is, you know, has yeah, been going on forever. Because that, that's the other weird thing about this festival. Because obviously, uh, you know, I can't win the Fosters thing, but all the comics, like, uh, and I, I was thinking, well, why don't they announce it midway through the the nominations midway, so then it helps boost those good shows. Sure. And then they kind of pointed out the young kids that, uh, well, then there's a lot of other people who think they might be up for it. And if they're not up for it, then they go, no, fuck, what's the point of the festival? Yeah, Which is right. not what the festival's about. It's sure. about doing a good show. Like, you know, sure. So that's a bit weird. But do you, do you, I mean, just on the subject of the awards, do you kind of, obviously as someone who's won the Perrier in, yeah. in the past, did did that make a big difference to you? Are you okay with the idea of winning an award? Because it seems from your work and from what you're talking about that you'd be the sort of person who'd kind of turn down an award. Yeah, or sort I, of I wouldn't turn it down, but I, I don't think it's important. I don't really play the game. I won one this year, though, by the, uh, <laughs> the show, if you're thinking of coming along tonight. The uh, Herald Angel. They gave one. Oh, you did, you did. You got a Herald Angel for yeah. the show. Okay. But, but, like, but like, that's sweet. But I don't think, like, the Foster thing, I went there yesterday because uh, I, don't, I don't ever go to them. Mm -hmm. But I went because Carl Donnelly's a friend and he was nominated mm -hmm. and he couldn't be there. So I was going to accept it for him. And it was interesting just watching it because, as I say, I don't go to them and I don't really want to be part of that thing. And I just think, I think also, I think Foster's is a ridiculous sponsor for comedy because mm. I just don't, you know, because I tell you, now this is how wanky and middle-aged I am. So I went there and and I watched that and went, yeah, I'm very happy for Bridget winning and the other people. And then I walked away and there was a Scottish guy pissed out of his head carrying a 10-pack of Fosters, talking gibberish to his mate, going across a road during a red light, I might add. And he was that pissed that he had the can of Fosters and it fell out of his hand. And, you know, all the frothy stuff came out. It didn't bother picking it up. And all I could see is this image of the can of frost, frost was there <laughs> and just going, this isn't what comedy's about. <laughs> I had that little moment to myself. See, that's when other... I don't drink anymore, so that's when other people are, 
yeah, having fun late at night. I'm having profound moments during the day. <laughs> <laughs> Philosophical musings about drunk spilling fosters. <laughs> but I, I don't think I don't think it's a good thing. Uh, and I I just think. Um, just watching because all, all the comments like you shouldn't be putting them into competition like obviously mm. they should be given a leg up and, and everyone every comic you know people this is the weird thing that people don't understand is that every comedian is insecure and every day we need a slight ego boost before a show mm. like it's lovely when someone comes up and says saw your show I really enjoyed it that means the world to us no matter where you are in your life it just validation is so important mm. and so it's good in that sense but just watching that ceremony yesterday and just watching like, you know, 12 disappointed people. Mm. So it kind of, the maths doesn't work there that one person's extremely happy and there's a lot of people who are kind of quite sad about the whole sure. thing. Sure, and, and it's also, that room should really be just whoever's given out the awards and the people who are nominated. But there seems to be a lot of people in this industry now who seem to make a lot of money by simply watching comedy. Sure, okay. I, I don't there's think a that lot, makes much sense. There's a lot of in kind of peripheral industry things yeah. now, I think, about people who work in comedy branding and kind yeah. of like, you know, the, the force of comedy as a means of... I suppose comedy has always been used to sell beer because that's kind of a lot of the, the motivation for pubs putting on gigs in rooms about pubs is to try and sell yeah, beer. I, well, it's a it does seem to have well. spread out in a... It's naive of me not to think it is a business because that's what everything is at the end of the day. <laughs> So this is Sean. Uh, I'm going to let this interview speak for itself, mainly because I'm poorly at the moment, as you can probably hear from my voice, but also because Sean's got a lot to say and I'm going to let him say it. He's been through an extraordinary sort of a renaissance and from being almost a, a comedy pop star in my youth, uh, he's refined what he does and what he aims for and he's making some really interesting comedy that's genuinely about something. Uh, so it's, it's fascinating to see his work, very, very funny. And, uh, and fascinating to think about what he'll come up with next. That is two fascinatings in a row, which means you have to finish your drinks. Um, do feel free to, uh, <laughs> to tweet at ComComPod. Um, let's, uh, let's use the hashtag CCPDrinking. That's ComComPodDrinking. Uh, with your suggestions for the ComComPod drinking game. Uh, there have been some lovely ones on the Facebook group uh, and over Twitter generally, but let's do those with a hashtag and let's see if we can compile the definitive list. Um, Thank you for listening to the Gary Delaney episode. Thanks for that. Loads of comments. Um, Howard Reed and Tony Cowards on Twitter, both excellent comedians, uh, suggesting that the ep should be destroyed on account of how useful it is. So go back and listen to that before something happens to it. Um, Paul Savage was kind enough to put that one together, the, the Delaney episode in Wolverhampton, and he promoted that show and uh, sort of did that, uh, just sort of made it all happen, really. And the brilliant Adnam Ahmed in Leicester, he did the same thing with the Nick Helm live comcom. And uh, I really enjoyed doing it somewhere new. I really like bringing the show to people outside of London or Edinburgh. So if you're a promoter and you'd like me to come and do something similar near you, we can discuss that. Uh, email me, info at comedianscomedian.com. And uh, I'm more than happy to talk about sort of visiting you somewhere and, um, and doing a live ComCom uh, with a guest that we can decide upon between us. Um, that's everything. Oh, God, I feel dreadful. I'm sorry. This is what a downer on, on the episode. Fascinating interview. Three in a row. That's a tequila. Um, finally, thank you everyone, as ever, for all your donations. Very kind of you. You too can support the show by hitting the PayPal button at ComCom. At, it's not even ComCom, it's comedianscomedian.com. I'm in a state. Sorry, Sean. Sorry, you, the listener. I'll be fine by the next time I speak to you. Or dead. Now, it's back to Sean Hughes. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So with the show that you brought up, your first, or not your first hour, but the hour that won the award. Sponsored by Budweiser, I believe. Sponsored. <laughs> um, so that, had, had that been a show that you had kind of waited for, well, had you waited for the stuff to come for you, or had you kind of written to a I tell you a exactly what that? happened. I I wanted to. I was really frustrated on the circuit. I've never liked club comedy. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't really suit me. And uh, I I kind of I got into a situation with the clubs I really liked. I said, "Can I start doing forty minute sets?" Because I feel I could express myself better. Because mm-hmm. I, I like to just mosey on in rather than mm-hmm. going bang here we go. And uh, and they say yeah, and then they go well, and they say, well, don't tell anyone else you went well because you don't want anyone else asking for forty minute sets. And I went well, I think this could be the way forward. And they weren't having it. And I this is this sounds like uh, bullshit, but I I said no, I'm going to write this show. I'm going to write a one man show with a theme and a narrative and like story, and which hadn't been done in the first okay. before. Okay. Like, now it's I, now I started is, all yeah. that shit. Unbelievable. Really? Yeah. Like I'm not taking I'm not the first person I have to tell a story, don't get me sure, wrong. Sure. It sounds arrogant, but it was that wasn't on In terms of like an hour of comedy. So yeah, people yeah. were doing hours but they were just their club set hours. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Okay. And uh, and I just wanted to do it because I really wanted to uh just abstract comedy. And um and I, I quite literally said if this doesn't work and it wasn't if it doesn't win the award, mm. I said if it doesn't work because like the day before uh, I went to Edinburgh that year, I did the show at the East Dulwich Tavern, mm-hmm. like which is a pub, so it was quite hard work. But it fucking died on its ass, and I was getting the train the next day to do the show. And like, and that's the one, as I say, that won the award. But it was, um, but if that hadn't worked, I probably would have quit comedy because I, I just couldn't bear the idea of going back and doing the comedy store and junglers and sure. stuff. It just didn't suit me. It wasn't what it was. How about. does that? How does that feel to have to have pioneered that? that form of doing something new with comedy and then I mean you presumably you've been to a lot of festivals since then so you've seen people take that and you yeah, know take it all great. sorts of different directions but, like, but yeah but like as I say I think I was just a little notch in that but like I'm very happy but what, what people tend to do now is they some people doesn't suit a narrative so they, they feel like mm. everyone has to have a name of a show which is ridiculous sure. it, it shouldn't be the case it should be just do play to your own strengths and some people are really good but like the thing about the Edinburgh Festival it is an amazing festival but people have lost sight of what it's about and it is about, the reason it's on for a month is not in the hope that every television producer will come to your show because sure. it's on 28 times it's because you get 28 goes to make a show better every night mm. and like my show from the Wednesday we started on the 29th to tonight. It's the same show, but it's so much better. Mm. And, and I'm that's what I'm taking from the festival. Like and, the, and where is where is this festival in the life of this particular show? What happens to it next? Are well, you yeah, touring that, the show next? Yeah, well, that's the beginning. So I'll, I'll okay. tour it in January, and uh, and then it becomes a two-hour show as well. Okay. Um, and that's the joy of that. Uh, so I put more stand-up into it that way because because uh, yeah when you I d- don't really have support acts and stuff so yeah so it just grows and grows and then hopefully some things happen with it but if it doesn't it's fine because to me it's always been everything else as a bonus mm-hmm. and I love doing the show and that's uh, that's very important to me and if I didn't like doing it, I just simply wouldn't do it mm. is that why you you had a big break from from stand-up yeah from I can't remember the dates, but you were certainly... I remembered you as a younger person. I remembered seeing Sean's show on TV. I was a big fan of your TV show. And I, I, I look back at it, at some of it uh, yesterday and today as part of kind of prep right. for the interview. And I was amazed by how much of it seemed... I don't know, it seems, it seems more ahead of its time than some stuff being done today. Like in the yeah. first episode where you kind of walk out and you're on the phone to someone and you say, oh, no, I can just see the pub because you're on a studio set. Obviously, the well, studio... We were given well. That that was all based on the on the Perio winning show, but th- we were just like again unheard of now. But we were given absolute freedom. They just they gave us a load of money, so the budget we yeah. could do what we wanted. And, and who was us at that time? Who were you making it with? Is this you in a production well, no, company? Yeah, it was or a production company okay. came on board straight away, and uh, and it was just beautiful. They just went. I'd go in and read the script in every week, mm-hmm. and they'd had very little qualms about it. And then pretty much then when we got to filming. Uh, We'd film on a Friday and we'd start on the Monday rehearsal and then I'd got that week to really kind of... Because uh, like in any script that you write, you always... There's just bridges where you go, that's rubbish, but I'll eventually get rid of that. But that, sure, gets, me, okay. that gets me to there. 
And, and were you writing all of that sort of in a room on your own, or well, were you I, writing it with other with the? No, I wrote it with one of the I, a guy who had helped me a little bit with the uh, live show. I brought him on board for the first series, uh, and then I realised I don't like working with other people because <laughs> okay. I'm much better on my own. But um, yeah, so I, I brought him in initially just to to help me out, and then I wrote the second series on my own. Okay, so that. So with the so with the, what we were talking about was the the gap. So after the TV show, and then you you were on Nevermind the Buzzcocks, and you were you you saw so you were very sort of present as a stand up comedian. Yeah. Well, what happened was I did two series of Sean's show, and uh, I loved doing that. But then I started touring, and the tours were full of fourteen year old girls, mm. and God love them for coming. I really appreciate it. But that's not why I do stand up comedy. And quite literally, the autograph sessions were taking longer than the shows afterwards. Okay. So I said, I'm not doing any more of that. Which was kind of brave, because I wanted another series. Sure. But it just, uh, so I pulled away. And then, then I went to quite, a, I kind of bounced off that and went yeah. to a very dark place and started writing much darker comedy. Okay. And it's sort of partially to make sure that 14-year-old girls wouldn't enjoy it. Do you mean well, to kind no, of break well, I, out I, I, of being I, the... I, I hope. That I wasn't kind of going, well, what, what can I do to annoy 14-year-old girls? <laughs> sure, but do you see what I mean? In terms of the, the audience you were attracting wasn't necessarily in key with what you actually wanted to be saying. Yeah, and, but no, and that's absolutely the case. But and it just like, in, in essence, it's a bit of a weird thing because... I, I like even yesterday I met a guy and he just came up to me and he says you were such an important part of my childhood you know mm. and, and I know how important that show was for certain people it was mm. always just culture it wasn't mainstream and so I'm I'm very like that is my legacy at the moment and I'm very happy with that and then as I, said, I did that and then I, like I was doing big tours and I was never really into doing the big things I'm very much about smaller audience and then then I started doing more uh, profound comedy. And then I realized, um, I, I, I think I was wrong, but I kind of, I started writing novels and I felt I could get much bigger ideas across with those. And so I felt with comedy, you do have that kind of restraint that you do have to make people laugh mm. every 30 seconds. And that's right as well. And I, I felt that right uh, quite restraining for me. So I just okay. went, I felt, and rightly so, I felt I couldn't do any more uh, mm. in that thing. Like I'd, I'd outlived all my life experiences. I've written all about it. And I think it's a good idea. And so I took seven years off. Okay. So I, I think I've, I've certainly experienced a, a small bit of that myself. And I know other comics who have, that you feel like you've given everything to comedy because you're, particularly if you're coming to Edinburgh every year, you're right, the demand of writing a new hour, to get a good new hour, you've got to write more than one hour. So you use up, you start to sort of dredge everything in your life and mine everything that's happening to you. Seven years seems like quite a long yeah. break. I think people normally... From what I imagine, is that well, people kind of go, I'll have a year off. It wasn't going to be a break. I wasn't going to do it again. Okay. How did that feel to make that decision of going, that's it? It felt good at the time because okay. I, I felt slightly, well, yeah, I was kind of in a bit, bit of a goldfish bowl, but I felt, yeah, I felt I I had that. I'd done that. Now. But how do you mean a goldfish bowl? Because of your success, do you mean? Well, yeah, yeah, because with celebrity, I guess, where, you know, people were always on your back about various different things. And mm. you kind of led astray as well in many ways. Okay, how do you mean? But, you know, just doing bad things like drugs and stuff like that. Sure. And that that wasn't as... I mean, when you say you were led astray, do you find... Like, I know a lot of comedians kind of infuse about that lifestyle of, like, that kind of crazy, I can do whatever I want and... Yeah, but I probably did for a while, but, you know, you look back on that with terrible sadness. It was very immature and, and very shallow. And, uh, like, it's like even today, like, you know, I try to explain to young comics that especially the ones who get really trashed after mm -hmm. a show like and I'm not like I don't drink but I'm not pure and I'm I think drinking is brilliant <laughs> I really do I just drank too much I I pretty much, I, I perceive myself as someone who, who still drinks but I drank all mine you know yeah, okay. I just drank it really quickly in my life and so I'm never going to have a go at people for doing that but it's just that and I just like you only learn from your own experience and I just think Comics don't know the absolute gift they're given of of being able to come into an audience and making that audience laugh. That's your buzz. And then to watch them destroy it over the next three hours by getting trashed. Mm. It's just a ridiculous thing, you know. And they're trying to trying to chase that uh, natural high. And it should it has to be a natural high, like, you know. And you know, I I kind of at my age I realised that doing a show is the, the amazing drug. Sure. And sure. even if it's like if it doesn't go to the way you want it, it's still an amazing drug, like, you know, and it's kind of it's kind of uh, life-affirming either way you do it. 
So having walked away from stand-up and then, did you say earlier on that you, you'd thought that the books, you thought that writing the books, something about that was wrong, you thought that, that was, it would turn out to be a mistake? No, that no, it, no. That it, would, that it would replace stand-up? No, no, I, no, it was kind of, I thought uh, it was probably a mistake thinking I'd quit forever because I'm a stand-up comedian and I, this is the only place I feel comfortable and okay. in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, uh, that's a sadness for me, really, but that, that's the way it is. And uh, so I don't know how I could even contemplate not doing that. But it's um, but the novels, I, I loved it because you could just, that helped, you know, craft a narrative as well. I really enjoy it. And it's also, like, it wasn't one of those things of, again, I find that a bit odd. What you were saying to as well about comics shouldn't, they should take a year off Edinburgh rather than kind of try and do mm-hmm. a shitty hour about something that doesn't mean anything to mm. them. And with novels, I wrote two novels because there were two stories I desperately wanted to get out of my head. And uh, and they were important to me as well. So and then after that, I went. Well, there's nothing else I really want to write about. You know, like sure. these authors who write a book a year, and you just go, yeah. well, that's a bit shit doing that. Okay. Why is that? Because because it just feels like the Edinburgh thing of just well, trying it, to chuck it, stuff together for the sake of it. Yeah. Then you, you're using a skill set, but to say absolutely nothing. And I think you know you kind of like weirdly, uh, Alexi Sale, uh, who's doing his stuff again. He's, he did an expression in his show, which is like one of the best expressions I've ever heard in my life. And he talks about how he shouldn't have came back because he's diluting the legacy yes and it's become one of my favorite phrases and yes. like, you know it's just an amazing phrase because i think he says in the show that his wife i yeah. think he puts that in the yeah. mouth of his wife and yeah. says that she's telling him but not she, to risk doing that that yeah. should be up there with quotes of quotes yeah. because as we get older all we are doing is diluting the legacy and not comics it's everyone in this room because you know you, you start you know whatever you do like because the aging process even when you're playing football and you're a great football and you play football in the park you're diluting the legacy sure okay. and everything you do in a sense is diluting the legacy so that just keeps on popping into my head all the time and uh you know you wonder if you're diluting your own legacy really you mentioned sadness there but you said it was a, a sadness that the stage was the only place you yeah. felt you felt happy do you think that sadness or some element of melancholy kind of permeates your work even though it's funny I don't think so, but you know, but I don't. I don't think like that. You know, I, I just get on with it. Okay, but it's. Um, well, the reason I'm proposing it is I saw your show on a night when I think the previous night I'd seen Jason Burns' show. Right, and obviously his show is yeah. just lunatic frenzy sure. of energy and improvisation and joy. And I thought to myself, I think what I'm seeing here is like a happy man being happy. Yeah. You know, separate to the, the funnies involved, uh, separate to the laughs. And I wondered if when I was seeing yours, I don't mean this to sound like a criticism. <laughs> a sad man being sad. Well, it was, there was, it was a melancholy show. There was a story, there was a story in your show yeah. about being picked up by a pervert on the, in a car on the way yeah. home. I, you know, went, yeah, but I, like, it's the thing of, it's an Irish thing. We're not frightened to show our emotions, which British people do seem to be scared of that much more than us. And I, I don't see it as sadness at all. I'm very content. And, uh, but what I'm probably doing is, because the last show I did uh, last year was about my father dying, which mm. again, melancholic subject, but a very uplifting show. Mm-hmm. But, and this show, that made me more evocative of my childhood. So I think what I'm trying to do is help people make sense of their lives by talking about bad things that are happening in your childhood. But it's not a sad show in the slightest. Sure. No, no. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't coming, I wasn't crying uh, during it. But I think, I, I think what I'm trying to say thanks. is that <laughs> yeah, lowest, lowest bit of the legacy. Um, I think what I'm trying to say is that you, it, that's it. It had the sense of you wrestling with something. You would, you, you know, you, you were. A lot of it was about the, you know, the bad advice given to you by parents and teachers and priests, and and I just wondered whether there was something, something in in that show whereby you you say it and you get it out through comedy, and then you don't need to think about it anymore. No, no, it's not therapy. Okay, uh, in the slightest. But no, I just think. But yeah, like, but then I have another good job with you in the audience because it is to try and make you feel better about yourself because bad things happen to us all. Mm. And I think, you know, you, I, you can only kind of write about what you know as well. But I, like, as I say, the main thing in that show is to let you know that it's okay if things don't go great for you. It doesn't make you... And it's all about uh, being together, like, you know, because, like, it's a quite abstract in the show where the old pub joke, a character from a joke comes into sure. my life and things like that. But it, it's... Um, like, But that's... Like, some of the reviews have been saying it's a really intense show and it's not in the slightest... Like, it's really mentally and physically kind of exhausting for me because mm. it really takes that, and it's a real powerhouse of a performance. It's very energetic, but it's, um, 
but there's no sadness there whatsoever. And I, I did the thing is, like you know, I use children's clothes to show emotion, mm. but the the hardship and the hardship of uh, when romance breaks up. But that's to make people again feel better about. Because we've all but been in broken relationships. Sure, but the even though the the outcome is that we feel better, the means that you're using that's it's kind. Of, do you not think that's poignant when you've got children's clothes on a rack and you're talking? And it's funny, yeah. because you're talking about oh, there's this girl and I fancy this girl and this is me and that's the other yeah. guy. But it is kind of it. It is kind of poignant. Do you not think? Well, poignant, yeah, but I wouldn't say sad. You know, I think it's it's like. But but see, this is the other thing I do in the stand-up set at the moment is uh, like it's weird how. We we get we, we pretty much uh, an audience gathers together as a community and that's what you are for the for the moment and we always do that to laugh and I don't understand why people don't do that to cry, you know, some more because comedy is so so close to kind of uh, laughing is so close to crying, it's unbelievable. It's pretty much the same muscle that you're using, and all I like again it goes back to like yeah if you're doing a twenty minute set just keep the chuckles going but an hour you want to take people on uh, you know. I hate saying the word fucking roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> but you do want the whole gamut of emotions. Like, you know, and you want the ups and downs. Because what tends to happen is um, in an hour set um, where people haven't got live experience, they, they do really funny stuff at the start. And then they do a meandering story mm-hmm. and then do another bit of funny bit at night. And, uh, and I tend to like, try to kind of bring real life into it and, and bring that narrative in. So you've got little resting points in the show, but not where you're kind of doing duffer material. You're just doing slightly sure. more profound. That's that's my thinking, my logic behind it. You know, people might just go, no, that was quite a meandering story in the middle of yours as well, Sean. Sure, sure. But that's where I'm coming from, rather than, like... Because, like, in any hour show, there's that 40-minute dip as well. Mm-hmm. So, so Something I see in a lot, I think something most people probably see in a lot of shows once they've seen enough Edinburgh shows is that they there is a sense of there are formulas it's something pre- yeah. previous guests have talked about on the show uh, on on this show about how you can you know if a sad thing happens at 45 minutes and then you know there's, there's, so there's there's almost a formula did you in your in your current show with the amount of you know the sort of Edith Piaf you're yeah. wearing a dress at the beginning. You've got a guy on stage trying to fit a, a you know, a shape into mm-hmm. a, a like a child's play shape set. Those elements is that like a, a conscious effort to break the formula of just being a man telling stand up, um, or is it just that all all avenues are open to you? Yeah, it's more all avenues. I uh, what I, I tend to do with uh, the bigger ideas is let them really permeate and um, ferment in my brain for about a year. So. I kind of knew I wanted to use children's clothes to be evocative of childhood and use drama that way. Mm. And then I knew the building blocks was such a big part of everyone's childhood, so we built that. And then we got a machine, a buzz machine, that says fail mm-hmm. <coughs> to let people kind of be interested in that. So those ideas, I, I let, I, that's not like, oh, I've written 40 minutes, let's how we flesh this out. Those ideas were in my head way beforehand. Sure. Like, ridiculously, um, I know that my next show... The only thing I know about it is I'll be wearing a black suit. Okay. And that's there, and I don't know why, but I will be wearing a black suit, and that's all I know about the next show. Okay. So I'd book tickets for that straight away. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good one, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Easy PR angle, classic. Um, do you find when you're doing... I want to talk a bit about your audience and how your audience has developed, because if you're doing work now that is... Is it more challenging to do stuff with it, you know, in a dress at the beginning and with the, you know, with children's clothes on, say, a Friday or a Saturday night here at the festival? Yeah, do you find that people come in that aren't expecting that sort of a show? Yeah, they're the hardest nights is the weekend. But having said that, um, yesterday's audience were the best we've had for the whole festival. And what was it about them when you say the best? What? Well, because they went for the second I walked on, they just went for it, and then we went on the journey together. That's what I mean. It, like when it works, it's a real proper journey that we go on. Um, and see, it's that weird thing as well, that because I've always loved callbacks before they were kind of every fucker does them now. Yeah, yeah. But but now, like, it's just to explain for the people in the room that might not know everyone, the terminology. Even, everyone has been to one comedy show. Knows does what everyone a hands up if you is. don't know what a callback is? That's there'd be at least a few. So it's reincorporating something that you mentioned earlier on. Yeah, and then basically a lot of the time you're laughing because you're remembering it happened earlier on. It's quite a cheap device. Uh, but I, ev- everyone uses them, including me. And uh, but but now, because I remember uh, a comic came up to me and says, oh, I love all your callbacks in your show." And they're not callbacks. They're like because 
in like because I do use comics, but they're not like I I do bring things back, but they they're to make sense of the mm. show rather than and, being uh, some arbitrary kind yeah. of technique layered on at the end. Yeah, because like I think one of the beautiful moments is when I talk about uh, accident mm-hmm. with the virginity, you know, and, and mm. that's. Uh, I was just talking about a philosophy, really. I know mm. that makes no sense if you don't see the show, but if you don't see the show... <laughs> <laughs> so when you talk about the philosophy, or, or jokes as philosophy, yeah, is that the most important thing to you in the show? What, like in terms of what drives you to do the show? Is it, is it wrangling that philosophy that's the most well, important? Yeah, I, philosophy is probably uh, too highfalutin, but it is to get ideas across. Like, like, and also, you kind of you find out... Um, like I didn't realize to way into the doing the show that I was really upset that society tells us how to behave and we like sheep tend to do that and that became quite a big part of the show and that's and that's kind of that makes gives me such joy when that part of the show when I tell people it's okay not to do those things and and I love like I just like and it's not really you know ideas about my station but I hope people go out of my show and then they have some new ideas hmm. like you know but not to even agree with, but it's gone. Right, I hadn't thought about that, and that's all. That's all I pretty much. Well, I think all good comedy does that, doesn't it? It's not just about laughing. You do go out going, "All oh, right, wow, that's a weird way of looking at things." Yeah. That's so I'm hoping, otherwise, I've been doing it wrong for such a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but would it feel like doing it wrong? I mean, given that you're successful, you're a you're a successful professional comedian. Do you feel like you're where you want to be? Do you feel as successful as you want to be? Well, yeah, because like. So I was just talking to, uh, it's lovely. The thing I love about Edinburgh is it's a bit like living in a creative neighbourhood. I don't hang out with comics, but I love seeing them in the street mm. and having that five-minute chat. But um, I, and you meet some old heads, and it's just uh, like, I, I'm doing that, like, as I say, I'm not up for a Fossils Award, so I'm not kind of going, and I'm not looking at the reviews every day. I'm mm. doing it to be to a good show. So, I'm, of course, I'm doing it for that reason. Because it's it's really important to me to do the show, and mm. so I'm I'm where I'm at. But like you have to remember as well, going back to what I said beforehand, when we started doing it, I've never had a career. Mm. Just things have happened. I've never went I oh, and then I'm gonna do this and do that. But you know, everything else is a bonus. And I I am a stand up, and I kind of lost my way a little bit. But that's what I am. In terms of finding your way back after you lost your way, was it scary to come back on a on a stand up stage having not done it for seven years? No, but it's so much a part of your your bones that yeah. You the first show I did back, I just went, oh, this feels really good. Yeah, but and then but then very quickly, like I, that was felt really good. And then I did a DVD, and that was a really good show. But then I, again, I, I went, well, I've run out of things to say, and kind of because I, like, I I wish I was one of those comments I could play to any room. But if you put me in a room of students, they would murder me because I've nothing to say to those people, like you know. So and that's a fault of mine that I can't go across all that, but. But I, I'm kind of more interested in talking to my generation about stuff as mm. well. So my generation is, you know, like, because that's the thing, like, once you realize that you're not a hipster, and uh, that's very kind of, uh, that's very liberating. Okay, and why is that? So well, because cause I, I, like, cause I'm still in my head 12, and, sure. you know, I don't have that many mirrors. So And then I'm looking at it, what the fuck are those fucking 50-year-old people doing? I'm like, oh, they're my age. Yeah. You know, of course, that's why they're there. And like when I see uh, like eight year olds in the audience, I get double joy because I I love being able to because they I, I think they see me as kind of slightly rebellious, but it's also because my mother would never dream of going to see a show and she's seventy five. Not my show, but she wouldn't dream of you know very seldom leaves the house. So when I see someone who's eighty proactively going out, it just mm. fills me so full of warmth that people are living proper lives. You know, just real joy in my heart. Um, I'd like to give the opportunity for the audience to ask some questions if you'd like to. What normally happens is that when I say that, everyone goes, oh, I didn't realise we had to be involved. So I'll ask another question and give you a minute to think of some if you'd like to ask anything. Um, I wanted to ask about um, just your advice, really, on writing, on, on creating to either a newer comic or someone who's been going, say, as long as I have. Is there, are there any sort of principles that you try to write to? No, but I think, like... In essence, just that word principle. You should you, you should have principles, and then you should stick to those principles, regardless of you know whatever they are. That's what you should stick to. But you, nobody should be telling you what to do. I'm I'm a really anti comedy creative teaching classes. I mm-hmm. I don't like that. I think you should find those things out yourself over a longer period of time. So I'm anti all that. But um, 
I just think it's just a matter of like trying to find your own voice, which sometimes you find you haven't got the capability of doing, and other times uh, it might take forever. Like I think the best example to anyone uh, who's thinking of who wants to be a really good stand-up is uh, Mickey Flanagan, who you know I'm so delighted he's. Uh, you know, I don't know if he's having fun playing the stadiums, I can't imagine, but I'm so delighted for his success because he's just someone who stuck to his guns and had his voice and just, you know, chipped mm. and chipped away. And uh, and he's a perfect example of someone who works hard and, and is true to himself. Mm. Are there are there things, are there elements of stand-up that you want to attain that you think are currently not in your grasp? Are there things that you see people do that you go... I wish I was. I wish I could do that as well as that person. Well, yeah, I wish I didn't mumble, <laughs> and uh, and take uh, twenty minutes to probably say what a really good comic could do in five. Okay. Would you? Would you? Would you rather? Would you? I mean, I think the comics that can say stuff in five minutes. That's like a process of word economy and kind well, of yeah, writing like, like that. Yeah. There's, there's 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 club comics, and then there's people who express themselves in that sense. And the club comics can do that as well. But mm. club comics, that's a brilliant skill, which I've I've never been that great at. But it, it's like I I tend to get a I do the occasional soft gig on a circuit, and you always get the promoter going, yeah, yeah. I really love your stuff. It always takes 15 minutes for the audience to really get into it. Mm. And it's one of those things that once once I get the audience with my rhythm, then they want me forever. Mm. But, you know, I'm not one of those, wham, hey, how you doing? So I find it really hard in that sense. So, um, But I don't want to learn that. I like, you know, I just, I just want to be as natural as possible. You know, because that's the other thing. Like, I just had... Uh, bumped into a comic just beforehand and he says oh yeah people are saying they love your show the way you just, just basically have a chat with the audience <laughs> I fucking don't have a chat with anyone this is very hard thought out <laughs> philosophies I'm not having a fucking chat with the audience and they're going hey yeah uh, 14 quid and going how are you nice cup of tea but um, yeah so but but it is that thing I take it as a huge compliment because as I say it harks back to looking at Richard Pryor and making mm. him look look so easy when making he sees it look him casual. just chatting yeah yeah but it's like it takes a lot of hard work. Can we? Uh, we've got about sort of five minutes. We could have a question from the audience if anyone wanted to ask one. Um, what? What do you think? You're uh, we we died in one gig. It was hardly flopping. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're uh, if you're your double act uh, uh, in London, if you had gone back to Ireland as well, what do you think you would have ended up doing? Would you? Have well, that's the thing. Like life is brilliant like that. That's nothing to do with comedy. Like like you know, weirdly, your life can take weird different parts. But the strange thing is, I haven't heard from that guy since, and that was 25 years ago. He tweeted me last week with a picture of the two of us, which kind of gave me the creeps <laughs> a little bit, like, you know, just saying, oh, I saw this and I saw you on Twitter. But, um, yeah, no. Why, like, why, would that, why would that give you the creeps? Because I haven't, I quite literally... Oh, because he literally had no contact whatsoever. Time, my sister's okay. ill. I felt like sending a tweet, I felt like going, how's your sister? Yeah. But, <laughs> but he would have went, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know? But, um... Yeah, no, but I, I think that's why I think life's such a beautiful gift because it will, like, weirdly, just tiny little things can uh, change your life completely. So I wouldn't, it would have been, I think it would have been totally different, but I, I wouldn't know in what way that would have happened. But I just, I think, kind of, that's a little bit creepy as well, isn't it? Like, you go, oh, you know, be careful what you do, but just live your life and kind of try, as I say, be true to yourself and mm. then you tend to make the right decisions along the way. Just to digress onto Twitter for a minute, do you uh, engage with your audience? Do you engage with, I mean, do you hang around after gigs? Do people come up to you, talk to you in bars? Are you, do you, are you happier just disappearing? Yeah, well, I'm happy to talk to anyone in the right circumstances, but I'm also mature enough to realise that my relationship with the audience is on stage and then that's, that's all it is. Mm. And that, that comes to really the hard way because like, every comic would tell you this where I think it was, I remember it was very much, I think it was in Norwich where I played a gig to like 600 people or something and really feeling good about myself and I just went into the bar and everyone had gone home. There's <laughs> 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 nobody here to see me. And with that sadness when you end up going to, back to the hotel with your tour manager and stuff and having a few beers and just going, that takes a while to get used to that. That's the, you're, they don't want to know. They don't want to have a drink with you. They just that's it. You made them laugh and just go home. So, like as I say, it's lovely to get validation, but I don't tend to engage with people. I don't wait outside and I don't hang out afterwards. Is it is it harder now that you don't drink? Is it harder to cope with the 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 come down after a after a gig? I don't see a come down. It's just. Natural well, like you were saying about going, you know, going back and having a yeah. few pints with your tour manager. If you can't now have a few pints, 
Well, no, I kind of, as I say, because I'm aware that the show was the buzz, and mm. so then you just get on with it, really. Like, I kind of get, like anyone, you just get a little bit tired. I get, I'm tired for about a half hour afterwards, as I all just, uh, as mm. I just disengage. But then after that, I'm absolutely fine. And I, I, I get like, what I love is, and I think a lot of comics, I like a routine. Like you've really tonight's show could be really shit, and I'll blame you, <laughs> because I tend to do the exact same thing before a show. Okay. And this is really yes, cut okay. into that. Um, yeah, absolutely. I've so, spoiled you. And like, I, I go to the same place after the show uh, for coffee, and uh, and then I pretty much uh, don't hang out. But yeah, I kind of, uh, and also. Like, uh, <laughs> like, this sounds ridiculous, but I'm missing my five-minute power nap this afternoon because of this. And so uh, that could really affect the show, because I really do need that five minutes. A really good night to see Sean tonight, <laughs> to see how he functions without the power nap. Um, we've probably got time for one more question. Great question. Now, what happens to the old comedians, yeah, well, and how long will you go on? <laughs> they're, they're all in that room waiting to be interviewed. Um, well, yeah, I don't tend to look too far ahead. Uh, I think that would destroy every fabric of your being. But, um, well, um, I th I, well, luckily, um, I say luckily, but I've always had myself down for maybe dying mid-60s. Because, so <laughs> no, but it's a stressful life, so... And you, like one of the, again, one of the saddest uh, moments of touring the last three years was uh, I did a gig in um, is it Tewkesbury uh, where Eric Morecambe died. I didn't know that. Uh, do you know that theatre? Is it is it the Rose? <laughs> yeah, and like it's like it's a very sweet theatre, but it's a tiny theatre, and uh, and he d uh, and the thing is like. Like you probably guess, but every dressing room and everything is shit, and it's really depressing, and it's, you know, it's a horrible place to be, and because you're obviously filled with slight anxiety as well. And Eric Morgan was one of my heroes, and just the fact that he didn't actually die there; he had a heart attack in the dressing room, and then was rushed to hospital, but died on the way. And I just went, oh God, he died in this. He practically, you know, started his death in this room, and I, f I, I found that so offensive that such a genius went in in such a horrible circumstance like that and but my point is like comics do tend because of the stress not to live to bob hope was just that weirdo who lived forever but everyone else like <laughs> so you want to start getting on with it because you're you're dead in your mid-60s so, as well so when i said earlier on about there being a, a pervasive sadness or a bleakness <laughs> to your but, work and you went no there isn't but, it's funny but absolutely because i don't see that as a sadness i take that on board that i've accepted that that's, that'll be my faith and I, I don't mind dynamite, but I, 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 put, I did pensions in earlier age for tax uh, reasons. And I said, uh, I'd like them to come when I'm 50, please. Because I was very much aware of that. I wasn't going to go, yeah, I'll, I'll take them out at 70. I'll be fucking way gone. <laughs> so are you concerned about... Um, I, now, where did I read this? Stuart Lee quoted someone else saying it. It might have been Harry Hill. Uh, being, uh, about being asked what their ambition was. And they said their ambition was not to die alone in rented accommodation. Um, well, yeah, that would be a big one, but I'm not frightened of dying. So, like, the circumstances doesn't matter. But as I say, I just found it sad that someone like Eric Morecambe went in a really, really in a provisional uh, theatre, like provincial, not provisional, it's not like the <laughs> IRA, <laughs> um, provincial theatre. But, um, but yeah, like, but it's, it's just it's just that nonsense as well. I remember, I, I remember as a child watching Tommy Cooper die, you know, in that show, and I mm. knew because like. When they were dragging him in, I said, even then, I had comedy bones. I went, that's not part of the routine. Mm. He's not well there. And and people were saying, oh, Tommy Cooper, that's the way he would have liked to have gone. There's no fucking way. He wanted, wanted to die in the middle of a routine. He wanted, if anything, he'd like to be with his friends and family around a bed, not like in a, in a kind of being drugged into a horrible dressing room in the Palladium with Jimmy Tarber going, yeah, nice. <laughs> that's, that's no way to go, is it? You know, so that, that's the nonsense about like dying, you know, that's how we'd like to die, making people laugh. That's terrible, terribly trite nonsense. Ladies and gentlemen, that's all we've got time for. Would you please join me in thanking Mr. Sean Hughes? Thanks very much. Cheers. <laughs> So that was Sean. Many thanks to him for coming along. And you can go to seanhughes.co.uk for details of the current tour of Penguins, which is all over the country this month. Uh, I think the last week of March, he's mostly in London. I think he's at the Tricycle. And it finishes at the end of March. So get in quick, seanhughes.co.uk. 
Uh, and if you missed his previous tour, The Right Side of Wrong, that is available, wouldn't you know it, on audible.co.uk backslash cc. And that's the uh, that little, it's not a backslash, it's a forward slash, sorry again, audible.co.uk slash cc. Let's uh, take the direction out of it and make things easier. And if you go to audible.co.uk slash cc, then when you get your free trial for Audible, that also helps support the show. They chuck me a pound or something. I've no idea what the actual money is. I can't think it's much more than that. Um, But if you're going to join Audible anyway, and why not? If you're you're doing lots of driving, traveling, uh, if you're a comedian and you travel a lot, or if I seem to be meeting lots of illustrators at the moment. Hello to all you I've met in the last few weeks. Um, who listen to the show during the day because they can, because they're working visually. So any of you, gang, get yourself along to Audible and uh, why not try Sean Hughes' The Right Side of Wrong as your free download uh, when you go to that slash CC thing. Thank you, everybody. God, I'm going to crawl away to bed now. Um, Thanks to Pete Jones. um, Thanks to James Lowey. uh, Thanks to Ben Lund-Conlon for his help as well. Uh, This episode was co-produced by Nathan Wood. And if I get round to it, and I think we will, if I am Pete jones get round to it um we're going to put up 10 minutes of highlights from this online that may not be up there the day that this comes out because uh, i'm struggling a bit but uh, i'm gonna bang it up there so uh have a look at that that's youtube.com backslash comcom pod that's everything i'm done speak to you soon <laughs>